Before I begin, I want to bless some people and tell you we have some product out on the book table. And uh, I actually had four uh, new books come out in the last three months. And uh, I, I was working with different publishers, so I, that's really not smart and not good marketing, but uh, <laughs> it's just the way it worked. As I said last night, I'm 63 years old. I, I can't wait to do, bring out one book a year as they want because <laughs> I've I got more I want to say than that. Uh, but this is the new one, uh, the Biblical Guidebook to Deliverance. I shared last night that one of the women uh, read it and got so touched. Uh, I'm, I'm going to give these away because I've got to make these go through today, next session, and then tonight. Uh, and her daughter, as she was, re- she was repenting, uh, her daughter with schizophrenia, within five minutes of her repentance, uh, and actually threw up as she was repenting, um, her daughter walked in totally healed of schizophrenia, and no one ministered to her or anything. I don't understand it. Uh, I do know it's created a whole lot of interest uh, in that particular church, and we have trouble keeping this book and stock there. Uh, but I don't think that, you know, mental illnesses always or even most of the time connected to um, demonic. I think that's um, naive. I also have to realize that, that it'd be also naive to think it never is. So um, anyway, this is a new one. Um, since I'm in Southern California, I thought I might mention this, a Christian response to New Age, Reiki, and Therapeutic Touch. Three teachings, that really goes into it. And, this, and we have a book out on saying whose who's energy is it, uh, healing energy, whose is it, and also a DVD. But this is the one that's got three teachings. And uh, I only have a few of them, so I'm not giving... Uh, only, <laughs> okay. I'm giving some stuff away, but I'm trying to make sure i got enough for everywhere we're going. Uh, I shared this last night, but if you struggle with self-identity, self-worth, if you feel like the, you, there's things in your past that you can never forgive yourself of, or if you've just been... Kind of got, a, got a, what I call bunkhouse thinking. Um, you, you've come back to God, but things you did while you're in the far off country, you say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just let me be one of your hired servants. Let me come to church and work and serve, but I don't feel like I can ever come into that place of real intimacy with you again. This could really be helpful. All by his grace and come out of the bunkhouse. Um, and then lastly, these I'll give away. Um, this is the prayer card that we have. It's basically what we learned in the vineyard and just kind of put it to where it makes it easy to uh, pray for the sick. And on the back is what we learned from Pablo Butari, who was the deliverance trainer for Carlos Santacondia for 12 years. And it's uh, the way they approached uh, deliverance, a very compassionate, uh, quiet uh, way, more uh, counseling, uh, helping them close doors and, and renounce things. And it's, uh, if you've done that really well, they, they, it's not a big battle at the end to set people free. If the battle is when you haven't taken away the legal right, and then it's, a little, it's much harder. And that's, uh, that's where you, sometimes I've seen the, the wrestling matches and the spitting matches and stuff like that. So I'd like to give these, three of these away. Who wants them? Oh, come on, come on. First one up. First come, first served. Plus that young woman there, because she had her hand up first. And uh, there you go. Go, go out, on your way out, get one. Tell Dennis I said you could have one. All right, I'm, I'm always forgetting things, so maybe I don't forget to. All right, uh, this morning I want to um, 
speak to you. Um, I mean, I'm, just, the, just the gospel. Um, you know, I, I, I noted more for impartation and sometimes healing, but I love the gospel. And uh, this is, the fullness of the gospel means it's applicable to so many things, not just salvation. My daughter is a great dancer. She's wanted to dance since she's six years old, or nine years old, before I could afford to give her dance lessons. And, and uh, from the time she is nine years old, she wanted to have a dance school, wanted to be a dance dancer, and then later um, she started her own dance school. She's really, really good. She has 500 students, and she uses her dance studio. By the way, this is something, if you're in an artsy area, she has developed a manual on how to use a dance studio for evangelism, and she leads more people to the Lord than some churches do. And, um, and then she's got it incorporated into a way. She has seven employees that work for her, dance teachers. She has 500 lessons a week that's being taught in our basement of our office. And she has the discipleship program developed into the dance program. And the mothers come in and said, and she said, I am a Christian. Um, uh, this is my values. And uh, uh, I want to bring your daughter into being one of my personal assistants because uh, she's really, really a good dancer. But you need to know my values. And I'm going to, I'm going to teach them the Bible. And, and um, about half the students are not Christian. She said, I don't want to have a Christian dance studio. I want to have a dance studio with Christian values to reach the lost. And uh, she does a great job. And so the mothers just say, um, usually by the time the, the, the children are old enough to come into in this relationship with her, um, the mothers just say, I don't care what you teach. I just want my daughter to be like you. And whatever you have to do for my daughter to become like you in the sense of her, you know, her love and caring. And she literally is the pastor of the dance school and she approaches that way she's just not concerned about dance she's concerned about the mother and the father she'll pull mothers aside and say um let me tell you something i'm seeing i think can really help you with your daughter and she says dad i'm having to teach parents how to parent because some of them they don't know how to parent they just berate their children tell them they're and i so it's a really wonderful wonderful thing and uh uh i just wanted to I don't know how I got on that trail. But anyway, <laughs> oh, I know how I got there. So my daughter's a dancer, and she dances in worship. Her husband is a great worship leader and uh, of a church of about 2,000 people. And my, my daughter, when she's eight, she said, Dad, I'm going to marry me a worship leader. Well, she did. And I, whatever she sets her mind to, she seems like it comes to pass. But see, they worship through song, and they worship through dance. I can't dance, and I can't sing. And I can't play an instrument hardly at all. And, uh, but one thing I want to, wor- want to worship with is what God has given me and his ability to communicate. And so I always say, Lord, let this message be my act of worship. May it uh, cause people to either come to Christ or fall more in love with Christ and appreciate even more what Jesus really did for us at the cross. So I'd like for you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, which is um, the trial of Jesus before Pontius Pilate. And, and I know that probably most of you know him. Uh, some may be on your way to knowing him. Uh, he may be in the process of drawing some of you. But for those of you who know him, this message is just not going to be about 
salvation. It's going to be about what Jesus did for us at the cross. Or really the title is seven reasons Jesus had to die. Um, Beginning in verse 11. And by the way, don't get scared. I'm not going to teach all seven ways. (laughs) I'll only probably be able to get through with three. Uh, I'll allude to four. Um, So verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. And while he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner. By the way, today we'd call this guy a terrorist because that really was what he was. Called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. And while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? Pilate asked. And they all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. Two questions. Which one do you want me to release to you? Second question. Why did Jesus have to die? Why was he crucified? They said, crucify him. He said, why? What crime has he committed? I want to answer this morning the answer to Pilate's second question. And if I answer his, that question sufficiently, I am persuaded everyone in here will become a greater lover of Jesus. And those who do not yet know him personally will want to know him as they are touched by his, his compassionate heart and value that he puts on you. Um, Seven reasons Jesus had to die. I'm going to tell you what they are. My, when I first got married, my wife, um, I don't know if you know this or not, but preachers are sometimes insecure. And, and uh, there, there's a tendency where we, you know, we, we really feel like we're successful. And, 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 but we're usually, um, we're, we usually hide the way we fish for compliments with statements like... Um, how did you like the message today? That's actually a fishing for a compliment. Because we need to hear them say, oh, you did. It was wonderful. It was a masterpiece, you know, whatever. And, uh, and that's what your mate's supposed to say. Well, my problem is I married my wife with the, her lowest gift is the gift of mercy. <laughs> that is her lowest gift. And... We're newly married, and I preach, you know, I'm preaching this Baptist church. And on the way home, I said, 
what did you think of the sermon today? And she said, what was your point? I said, what do you mean, what's my point? I said, all you did was tell stories. I, know, I, I just need to know what was your point. I said, I don't understand. What do you mean, what was my point? The points were the stories. The stories carried the point. If you got the story, you got the point. She said, no, I need a takeaway point. And I said, now, I'm, I'm just going to tell you something, Dan. You give me a point, I will forget it before I get to the car. Who can remember a point? I mean, I can't even imagine anybody's brain remembering a point without a story. And she said, I need a point. So I'm a better communicator today because I married Deanne. Because I thought at first she was weird. I thought, she's odd. Why can't she be normal like me? And then I learned that half of you, half of the world is like her. What an awakening. I realized, oh, I've been torturing half the people who's been listening to me preach. For the half of you that's like me, you love stories. You can care less about a point. You can't remember points. You need to have a story. You're going to love me. The rest of you, you will appreciate my wife. So let me give you seven reasons Jesus had to die and tell you where they're at. Then we'll come back and just deal with... Uh, uh, Three, or maybe four if time permits. Um, seven reasons Jesus had to die. Number one, that we could be delivered from the bondages of life and the demonic oppression and addictions. And he had to die that we could be delivered. Number two, Jesus had to die that we could be forgiven by a holy God who loves us and yet is holy. Number three, he had to die that we could be healed. Number four, Jesus had to die that we could be baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit. Number five, he had to die that we could have eternal life. Number six, he had to die to fulfill the eternal plan within the Trinity before the foundation of the world is already in the plan of God that he would come and die he died to fulfill the plan of redemption God's plan and number seven Jesus had to die that the issue of God's justice and his holiness and his love could all be met at the cross and where mercy would triumph over judgment and God would kiss the earth at the cross. Now, God wanted us to be so God wanted us to be able to recognize the Messiah when he came. And so out of the Jewish major holidays um, that he gave to them in their worship of God, they were all pointing to Jesus. And uh, so in the scriptures, and I and I'll, I'll now will give you the scriptures that you can write down for these because uh, in deliverance is the Passover, the Exodus event in the book of Exodus chapter 12. In the forgiveness, it's a second high day or holy day in the Jewish calendar. It's the day of atonement or Yom Kippur and on Leviticus 16 and the typology that's pointed to there. The great prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 
would teach us about him dying and his death and how it would be connected to healing as well as forgiveness. And then um, on that, in John chapter 7, verse 37, uh, as in one of the great feasts of the day, and uh, it was pointing to him as the one who would be the one who would pour out the Spirit and it'd be the fulfillment of the new covenant when God would cause his Spirit to become uh, and dwell upon us and we'd become a people able to hear God and be led by God and have God, not his Spirit, just coming upon us for some great thing and then leave, but come and abide and remain in us. So, um, and that would be John seven thirty seven, 37. Uh, the eternal life, John three sixteen, and it's really 14 through 16. God's plan is Peter's sermon on Pentecost, Acts 2, verse 22 through 24. And then the justice and holiness issue settled is Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. All right. Now, having laid out, my wife would be pleased. I gave you the points and where to find them. And now that we've got that settled, let me come back and let me have some fun as I talk and tell some stories. <laughs> this passage about deliverance, you're familiar with it. Exodus. God spoke to Moses and he said, take a lamb, a male lamb, young without blemish, bring it into the house, kill it. Take its blood, put it on a doorpost and a lentil. And when the death angel, the last of the ten plagues, that set the people free, freedom, deliverance, when the angel sees the blood, he'll pass over and your firstborn will not die. We all understand, I mean, most of the church understands that. But it was a great act of deliverance uh, where God brought the Hebrew children out from underneath the heel of their taskmasters, the greatest, most powerful empire of the day. And uh, God delivered them well for me there is that historical thing of knowing God delivered those people but there's also the another story you see I think it's very important that parents and grandparents tell their personal stories to their children and their grandchildren uh, some of I'll allude to later just my whole interest in healing started my grandmother telling me about her how she got healed and I'll tell you about it later but I, I want to talk about deliverance and how God is able to break the captives free and change people. And, and my, uh, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, uh, he was a mean man when he drank. He was an alcoholic. He was a womanizer. He got my grandmother pregnant who was not a Christian. She was, you know, playing guitar at a club in a, in a little band. And she... And, uh, he got her pregnant while he's married to another woman. Um, divorced her two months before my mother was born. And, uh, and then it was still unfaithful. He was unfaithful. There was an addiction in his life to sex. An addiction to being unfaithful. He was also an alcoholic. And when he drank, he would tear up the furniture. He and his brother were both alcoholics. And my mother was an adult child of an alcoholic. And she told me so many horrible stories that, you know, even when I was backslidden at 18 years old, uh, I, I, I was fine in the car if they were, you know, doing acid and speed and, and smoking, you know, grass and stuff. But if somebody popped a beer can, I said, let me out of the car. Because I had these horrible uh, stories of my mother telling me about how uh, her father would just, you know, get angry and tear up the furniture and throw it all over. He just became uncontrollable. But I'm so grateful 
I never knew him. I'm so grateful I have no horrible memories because I hate to say this, but I'm going to anyway. It may shock you, but I'm glad he died. I had another one. My grandpa was sitting in the amen corner of a little Baptist church. And my grandmother was a shouter and over there with the shouters. And, uh, and grandpa would, you know, he'd get on his knees and pray. They had the united prayer and everybody pray all at once like Koreans. And, and uh, that's the way we, we had that practice in my childhood. And grandpa just tears be rolling. He's so a man of peace, a man of love. He just was a, 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 I just thought he was uh, such a great, great example of someone who loved Jesus. And I did not know that other man. I'm so glad he died. I'd like to tell you about the nature of his death. My uh, grandmother had been recently healed. I'll tell you about it in a moment. And uh, somehow it woke him up. And this mean grandfather, the alcoholic womanizer, uh, he went to church. A little Baptist church. And he heard the gospel. And God awakened him. And drew him. And gave him the gift of faith to believe that no matter what he had done, God loved him so much he'd forgive him. So when I was two years old, at a little bench in front of a church, that bound man by, I believe, demons as well as alcohol came and knelt down, asked God, crying out that God would forgive him of the things that he had done. We called it praying through. And he, you know, we wanted to know that no one had to tell you he was forgiven. You knew you were. And he prayed through, and that old man died, and a new man was born again right then. And I got a new grandpa, and I was too young to remember the other one. I'm so glad that one died. But something else about that night so special to me, so unusual, was right beside him was Donald Clark, my dad, who was born again in the same night, in the same moment that my grandpa was. I know the power of the gospel to set people free because in my family history, we have the story of Grandpa getting radically changed. I, you know, I'm, I believe in whatever we need to walk in freedom. I'm for it. I'm for AA. I'm for NA. I'm for anything that helps people walk in freedom. And 12 Steps... And the way it originally was, uh, was created by Christians. I mean, really, really, when it was first initially created, that, that higher power was Jesus. <laughs> and, it, and, and they really talked to you about really dealing with God and, and dealing with this stuff. And uh, uh, in my tradition, we were to make things right with anybody we'd wronged. And, and right after we got saved, and we were to ask God to forgive us and and. and Grandpa had a one-step program that worked <laughs> because it included really all the others. And there at that altar, he was changed. He was delivered, and he was set free, and his nature was changed, and nobody had to tell him he'd been changed. 
forgiveness. The day of atonement. They bring up two goats. Leviticus 16. The first goat, the priest, the high priest, put his hands on it. And in that act, all the sins of the people was now put on this goat. And then they'd take a knife and cut his throat and take his blood, put it on his ear and thumb, vestments, and then go into the Holy of Holies only once a year where the mercy seat was at, where God would come down and all the sins of all the people were dealt with in this act of this goat in his blood going in and he'd intercede for the people for their sins to be forgiven. Now, this goat represents justification. Just as if you'd never sinned, that Jesus is both the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, but he's also, according to the Hebrew, he is also the high priest that ever makes intercession for us. It's really interesting. God provides a way of salvation. He doesn't provide many ways of salvation. It's kind of like, here, I am a holy God. Here is a way. I'm going to make a provision for you. I'm going to do what you can't do. I'm going to take care of your sins because you can't. And this is the way I'm going to, I want you to honor my way. Now they put a rope around that high priest's foot because if he went in God's way, mercy. If he went in in presumption rather than obedience to God's way, he would die in the place that's meant for mercy. And the rope was to pull him out because nobody else was supposed to go in there. And they had bells on these things to see if he's still moving, you know. And a lot of us understand, in this day in which we live, um, there's a tendency, there can be a tendency to put such an emphasis on imputed righteousness. I see you as Jesus and don't see anything but Jesus. His righteousness has been put on you. Your sins was put on him. And that's justification. And that really is a sense of grace. My concern is if we push grace uh, the message of grace to the degree that we say we, we distort relationship. That we push grace to the thing where it says, if you really believe in grace, you, know, you don't have to ask forgiveness for your sin. It's already dealt with. And if you do, it proves you don't believe in what he's done for you. And that when John wrote to First John, if we... We'll confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He's speaking not to the church. He's speaking to others. Well, that's not true. He's right. He wrote that to the church. So if we overemphasize this part, people can, I think, presume on the grace and actually move into licentiousness and just live any way they want because of an overemphasis on half of a truth. But see... When the high priest came out from there, there was a second goat. And he put his hands on this goat's head. And where all the sins now are also here. It's not only dealt with there and punished there. But now this goat, they took the goat with all the sins of the people. And they led it outside the camp, bearing away the sins of the people. And Hebrew says they, they led Jesus outside the camp to be crucified. And this is, this is sanctification. You know, if sin is bad because God loves us. And it hurts us. And he wants to redeem us from that which destroys and hurts and takes away. The enemy comes steal, kill, and destroy. It's, it's, it's wonderful to know you're forgiven. And now you can boldly approach God's throne, obtain mercy in your time of need, Hebrews 4. But if sin 
it's destructive. I not, I not only want to have imputed righteousness, I want to have a experiential righteousness. I want what happens in here to be manifested here that the things that held me captive, I'm not only forgiven of them, I am being freed from them. That he loved us enough not only to impute righteousness to us, but Jesus, the angel said to Mary, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. He didn't say in their sin, but from their sin. I need a, I need a Savior so powerful that he can not only forgive me, but he can deliver me, and he can give me the power to live a life much more free. Free of the things that destroy relationship and destroy us. Forgiveness. Oh, I, I, I understand forgiveness. One of my favorite stories, as a pastor 30 years, been in ministry 47 years, one of my favorite stories has happened while I was in seminary. I um, was preaching one day, and, and I said, my dad one time was testifying. This is and during my sermon I said this. My dad one night was testifying in church, and he said this. I want to walk. I want to live my life in such a way that I would want my three children to walk in my footsteps. Now, I, I gave that as an illustration. And this big woman, six foot two, 250 pound, um, jumped up and ran out to the Baptist church, hit the door so hard it slammed up against the wall, made a big kabang. And I asked the elders and deacons later, said, who was that woman? They said, oh, that was Sue. You don't want to mess with her. She is mean. And I don't know, it's the first time I've ever seen her in church. And... And I don't know what's going on there, but I tell you, if, you if, she, if she gets upset at you, you're in trouble. She'll slit the tires on your car. She may beat you up. She is mean. Mo many men fear her. She, she, she scares men. So I took my wife for my bodyguard to go see her. I felt like, you know, her 5'2", 95 pounds, that she'd be a good protection. So we went, and, and Sue was living in a mobile home. And, uh, uh, and I, we knocked on, she let us in, and I, I said, Sue, I just got to ask you, did your father die? Or what was, why, why did that bother you so much? You got up and ran out like that. She said, wait a minute. So Sue went and got a scrapbook, brought it in. It was about a half inch to three quarters of an inch thick. And it was full of cuttings from the newspaper of when she had been incarcerated for drunk and disorderly behavior, for battery, for contributing delinquency of minors, or all types of things she had done. She was so proud of how mean she was, she kept a scrapbook. And she had a scrapbook, and she's showing me. And she said, I used to be proud of this. And then she said, but now... I have a little girl in me. I don't want my little girl walking in these footsteps. I need to change. I need to really be forgiven. And I just not need to be forgiven. I need to be changed because I... And she was, by the way, she was an alcoholic. All of her brothers and sisters are alcoholics. There's nine kids. All of them were alcoholics. And she was just trapped in anger and stuff. And then she began to say, I'm going to have a baby, this little girl. And I may not get to see her because I, my brother, 
we went to this bachelor's party. What a woman was doing at a bachelor's party, I have no clue at all. But uh, they got drunk, and uh, these men were beating her brother, and she was afraid they were going to beat him to death. So she carried a butcher knife. She always kept a butcher knife underneath the front seat of her car in case of a fight. So she went and got the butcher knife, ran in there, and stabbed the groom the night before he was supposed to be married. And he almost died. So she's up for serious charges. And she said, I need to become a real Christian. And I don't want to have something that's not real. Because if it's not real, I'm, I'm trapped in sin. I don't want my daughter living like this. I need a real change. Not just so I'll get an easy, maybe a judge will be more. She says, I need it. It's got to be real. So I got her Nikki Cruz, Run Baby Run. I thought she could identify. And crossing the switchblade and a really easy New Testament to read. And, uh, and I, I see her immediately trying to reform her life. But she knew she needed more than reformation. She needed more than a New Year's resolution. She needed regeneration. She needed a change from the inside out. And she knew it. And so uh, she's reading. I'm, trying to, I'm sharing the gospel with her. But she uh, doesn't accept the Lord. I wrote a letter to, her, uh, to the judge on her behalf. And he asked. I, I was very in my early 20s. Uh, I think I was about 20 three or four years old, and he said, is Reverend Clark here? And I stood up, and, you know, I even, I even, never mind. He said, <laughs> he said, based on your letter about how she is wanting to be transformed, I would release her, but, and then he held up her rap sheet. He said, there would be no justice at all, and it would be an affront to the family, but instead of sentencing her, since sentencing her to 60 years, I'm going to sentence her to 60 days in the women's penitentiary in Indianapolis. And then when she gets out, I'm going to release her to you. <laughs> so I went every day, my, every week. I mean, we drive up 100 and some odd miles from the seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, up to Indianapolis. And uh, uh, my wife and I, we'd go in, we'd sh- in, in a prison in the chapel, and we'd, I'd try to see if she'd accept the Lord. And no, no. So one time we go up. She's about to get out, and she walks through the door, and as soon as I see her, I know she's been born again. Just the look on her face, that shame, that guilt, that depression, it is gone. She's beaming with joy, and she walked in. I said, Sue, you got saved. She said, yes, I did. I said, well, why? I mean, I, mean, I was trying to lead you every week, and you never, you never prayed that the prayer with me of giving your life to God. She says, I know, I know it. I just didn't feel like I was ready. But then I finished the book, one of those books you get, and there was a prayer in the back of it. And I, I kept reading that prayer and I just felt like, God will forgive me. And she said, I prayed that prayer and I was. I said, Sue, how do you know you were forgiven? How do you know it was really real? She said, oh, I know it. I feel peace. I feel joy. I don't feel shame. I don't feel guilt. And I'm praying for the family's the man's family that I stabbed, that they will come to know Jesus too. I thought, this sounds good to me. And so uh, then she said, but I have ruined my life. Look at me. I mean, she was 6'2", 250 pounds, and she wouldn't win a beauty contest. And uh, she said, look at me. What man is going to want me? And now I have a prison record, and I have a, a little girl. And I, God gave me a gift of faith. 
Because I said, I don't know how he's going to do it, but I believe if you'll stay true to God, he will put your life back together and he will give you, bring you a husband and you'll have a good life. And uh, so she got out of prison and the first day home, uh, I took her right behind the little Baptist church. There's a little river, a uh, shallow river, and her, all of her family's there. They just, they just got to see this. <laughs> and I baptize her. And her life was so transformed, within six months, she's teaching Sunday school for me in the Baptist church. Within one year, two of her brothers were also delivered from alcoholism, gave their life to Jesus, and became such stellar, on-fire Christian. You know, he who has been forgiven of much loves much. And they became deacons before I left the church. And for 18 years, every Christmas, I get a picture of her little girl and a thank you for what God did for her and for her family. I know this uh, to be true. Forgiveness is amazing. What about healing? When I was five years old, God put the seed in my heart to desire and be interested in healing. My grandmother, my maternal grandmother, after uh, was married to my grandpa, a few years later she was saved. Forgiven of all of her sin, her adultery, and all the stuff that she had done. And this is so amazing. New Testament grace so trumps the... In the Old Testament, God's trying to get us to understand the holiness of God and the seriousness of sin. New Testament, he's really wanting us to know how his grace will triumph over sin. But in the... Matter of fact, I have it written in my Bible... Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 2. No illegitimately born person can enter the assembly of the Lord. And I think, oh my God. If I was living under the old covenant right now, I couldn't be amongst God's people. My mother couldn't be amongst God's people. But my grandmother was forgiven of all that. And not only was she forgiven, and by the way, my grandmother could read a stop sign and write her name, and that's it. She was illiterate. I didn't know that for a long time. I called, Grandma just listens to the radio all the time. She listens to all this preaching. She's, and Mom later told me, said, it's because she couldn't read. That's the way she learned more about God was through others because she couldn't read. Well, anyway, uh, grandmother was telling me, I was in, with her, and I was five years old, and we were in the bedroom. And she said, honey, right here where we are standing right now is where your grandma heard Jesus speak to her in an audible voice. I said, grandma, Jesus spoke to you? Like, yeah, like you're hearing me now. I said, what did he say? Oh, he said, oh, honey, I had this big goiter. And that time, we didn't know how to treat goiters yet. The medicine, they hadn't discovered what you treat a goiter. And it was a big growth in my throat. And he said, Mary Magdalene, that's her name. If you will go into the other bedroom I will, and pray, I'll heal you. Be, now, Grandma, without any education, she's simple. She wasn't sophisticated. She wasn't, uh, she wasn't trained in philosophy and theology. 
She didn't think, now, Lord, if that's really you, there's no need for me to go into that other room because you could do it right here. She didn't think that. She just said, okay. <laughs> Took three steps. She's in the other room. And she said, now, honey, right here is where it happened at. I began to pray, and it felt like a hot hand went down my throat, and it instantly disappeared just like that. That put a need, a hunger, a thirst in me to know the supernatural power of God and God to heal. Then I heard at 12 years old, my, grand, my Sunday school teacher, who I really, really loved, she had a, like a sixth grade education, and uh, uh, she didn't know theology very well, but she knew Jesus very well. And I think I'd rather have a Sunday school teacher who knows Jesus very well and maybe not so good at theology and somebody knows a lot of theology, but they don't have Jesus not very real to them. And, and so she would just, oh, she loved Jesus so much. And she was such a good Sunday school teacher. And then uh, uh, she got cancer. And the tumor was as big as a, like, a, almost like a, um, a cantaloupe or a honeydew, a uh, melon. And it's in her, and it was attached to organs. And I remember uh, the little Baptist church that we were part of, we prayed for her. And the next day when they went in to do the surgery, uh, it had shrunk to the size of a tangerine and wasn't connected to anything, and it just fell out. (laughs) I I just, well, that's God. And I still believe that's God, and you're not going to talk me out of it. I'm sorry, but you won't have the ability. And uh, so I I just, you know, loved it. So I thought God would heal saintly women like my grandma and my Sunday school teacher. But then I found out that God is, will heal you when you're not so saintly. You see, the Sunday school teacher brought me to forgiveness. I, um, I heard the Lord, uh, let me put it this way. As a little kid, I heard a lot of, in a Baptist church, you hear a lot of evangelistic sermons. You just do. And uh, when I was seven years old, God awakened to me. This is a term that means that you're dead in your sins, and God wakes you up to the fact that you need salvation. It's a, I was only seven years old. I could check off. I'd never been drunk. I'd never committed adultery. I'd never fornicated with anybody. I, mean, I, I didn't have any of these big list of things. I'd never taken God's name in vain in my life, you know. And I believed in Jesus. I believed all the truths of the scriptures. I believed they were true. But even the devil believes and trembles. So believing in the truth is not enough. You got to be born again. As Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in John uh, chapter 3. And so my guilt was when I would hear this passage I read to you, I would be upset. How could the Jewish people do that? And they have suffered anti-Semitism ever since. But it wasn't really the Jews that killed Jesus. It was the Romans. But we don't have anti-Italianism. <laughs> we got anti-Semitism. And I, but I was, as a little kid, I was, how could they make the wrong decision? How could you choose a terrorist over someone who all he did was love and give value to the marginalized people and the prostitutes? And he would just love people so much. How could you choose Barabbas over, the, over Jesus? And I, I was just so complexed about that. And now God has awakened me. And the invitation that I feel guilty about is that I feel like Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, is knocking at my heart's door and saying, I want you to be mine. I want you to follow me. 
I want you to give your life to me. I know you believe in me. I know you, you know, but this is, I want you. I want you to, to give your life to me. And tears are running down my face. Not because of any great shame or guilt. Just the love of God is drawing me. And I was, I'm a, I'm a, I, I've been proud. I, I, I don't like pride. But, and sometimes insecurity looks like pride. <laughs> it's really more insecurity. But anyway, um, and I didn't, I didn't know how to answer my brother and my sister. I was the oldest of three. If they asked me how, what happened, I wouldn't know how to tell them. And, and so I rolled over in the pew, put my face up against the thing, and pretend to be asleep. And I'm just crying. And for nine years, every time there's an invitation, this dove of Holy Spirit would come knock at my heart's door. And I'd get tears in my eyes and nod in my throat. And I'd feel like the preacher's preaching to me. Well, it probably was because this little church. Now, this time we've gone to a church of about 25 people. And uh, my brother and sister and I are the only unsaved people besides my great uncle who's been resisting God for 30 years and hearts all hardened and everything. And, and, I'm, I'm, and I would grab a hold of the pew in front of me and, and just try not to cry and pray this prayer. Oh, God, please, I do want to become a Christian, but leave me alone. I don't want to do it today. Don't make me cry. Don't make me cry. God, I want to one day become a Christian, but not today. And I had prayed that for nine years. I never missed a Sunday. I was always in church. I don't don't think I was born in church, but close to it. And then every, what was happening is every time I said no, every time I resisted, it's like a thin layer was coming over my ear, ability to hear And my heart, the ability to feel. And after nine years of resisting God, by the time I was uh, uh, 15 years old, I could listen to a sermon and not get the invitation. I could listen to a sermon about salvation and feel nothing, no drawing, no conviction. And it is my belief that we can only come to God as he's drawing us. Convicting us. And this divine invitation of conviction is one of the most wonderful things that ever happened to you in your whole life. And so I realized, I I became concerned about my soul and where I'd spend eternity. And I, I, and separated not only from God, but from grandpa and grandma, mom and dad who, who, you know, in heaven, if I didn't know God and they did. And so I'm getting concerned. And, and I remember my dad had a man came to him and said, and this, this man for 30 years had resisted God. And he said, I can't feel anything. I have no sense of guilt anymore. I've resisted God. My heart has become hardened. So my dad said this, listen, what you need to do, what you need to do is ask God to draw you again. Try, just call out to God. Ask him to soften your heart. Ask him to draw you again. And when he does, don't throw that invitation away next time. So I, I, so I began to pray. God, for nine years, I've told you to leave me alone. And every time I get, was under conviction, I would say, I want to be a Christian, but not now. Leave me alone. Lord, 
don't leave me alone. Lord, listen to this prayer. I really want to be a Christian, and my problem is my pride. And so, Lord, I'm asking you to come with such conviction, such power of the Holy Spirit that you break my pride. I can't resist you. I was an Arminian praying a Calvinist prayer. I was asking for irresistible grace. And I was saying, God, just convict me. And if I say, leave me alone, don't listen to that prayer, Lord. Listen to this one. This is the one I really mean. So that if I ever do that again, just don't, 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 don't honor that. Honor this prayer. Break my resistance. And so I was in church the Sunday before my 16th birthday. And uh, my great uncle was my play partner in the country we didn't have a lot of people close by to play with and he was just a quarter mile up the road and he was my great uncle he was the, my grandpa's brother and uh, he was down syndrome and he had the mentality of a nine-year-old made a great play partner I mean, we had so much fun together but he his name was reno uncle reno as his nickname and uh, he stuttered really bad and so one night in his little country church, Uncle Reno got up and said, Randy, saved. And he's like, it undid me. And I'm resisting God. They give an invitation. I didn't come forward. So they have a handshake to help God out. And the handshake is everybody in the church is going to walk right in the altars right here. You know, that altars where somebody dies. <laughs> a sacrifice given to God. This is where you, you would kneel and pray. And I know it's called mourner's bench theology, but that's what I was raised in. And it worked pretty good for me. Um, and, 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 and so they'd walk you right by the altar. And then they'd shake hands. And then when you're shaking hands, they'd say, the deacons, Randy, don't you want to become a Christian? I said, yes, I do, but not tonight. And then I got through all three or four of them, got over here in the amen corner, and I'm thinking, ah, made it. But I really wanted to be saved, but I've got this, you know, this battle for your soul between the powers of darkness and the powers of light. There really is a battle for your soul. And that anxiety and that, that battle, you know, you know. So God answered my prayer. My Sunday school teacher came over, Sister Imogene, and she put her arm around my shoulder and whispered in my ear, Honey, don't you know how much Jesus loves you? And that's it. My prayer was answered. I didn't just have tears running down my face. I am boohooing. I start shaking and I'm crying and I'm just crying out loud. <laughs> and I ran to that altar and got on my knees and I started confessing all of my sins and giving my life to God, surrendering it to him. And I know he saved me. He literally took that guilt and took that shame away. He gave me, he drew me, and he gave me the faith to believe with. And it was marvelous. And I did really, really well. I was gloriously saved until I hit 18. <laughs> Two years later, Vietnam is raging. Some of my friends who are Sports legends in our high school. One guy, the captain of the football team, the captain of the uh, baseball team, the captain on, on his, on, of his basketball team. 
I mean, he was the quarterback. This guy still holds the high hurdle records for our high school. He came home with one leg this long, one leg this long. Other friends I went to a little grade school with came home in body bags. And it was not a good time to be 18 years old. It was an angry, rebellious time. And there was lots of stuff being introduced to our culture. The guys coming back from Vietnam. And I fell in with the wrong crowd. And I became a hypocrite. I stayed in church three times a week. And for 11 months got stoned every day. While I was in church three times a week. I was a hypocrite. You say, why did you be such a hypocrite? Because I was afraid that if I got too far out into the far off country, I may become so mired in the sin and captivity of the things that I was starting to do that I thought, being, not being a Calvinist, being Arminian, that I could lose my salvation and not be able to find my way back home. That's why I stayed in church. But because I was such a hypocrite, I was one of the main reasons that some of my friends wanted nothing to do with church because they saw such a... <coughs> hypocrite means to wear the face, the mask. But you see, not only are there hypocrites in church, you don't know it, but there's hypocrites in the bars. There are people who have known God and have walked away from God and are really not happy and are pretending to be something in there that they're not. In, in the sense of this, they have walked away from God and are pretending to be happy, but they knew that they were happier when they were with God. That was my situation. And so one night we're driving. I, had a, I worked in the oil field, so my dad was a driller. In the oil field. So I had a good job. I was making pretty good money. And uh, I had a new, uh, it's 1970, I had a new 1970 Chevelle Super Sport 396, four speed, 350 horse, positive track, 15 inch slicks on the back. No 18 year old should have a car like that. My children never got a car like that. They never got more than a six cylinder because <laughs> I know what 18 year olds are like. So one day when we're driving around, and the car's full of smoke, and it wasn't nicotine, and, uh, uh, and we're talking. I'm, I'm backslidden. And they said, what do you want to do when you get out of high school? And one of them said, I'm going to Canada. I am not going to Vietnam. I'm going to Canada. And the other one said, I'm going to have all the drugs I want and all the women I want. And another of my friends was saying, yeah, and I'm going to have all the beer and drink. I'm, and they, this guy was an alcoholic. He was, his dad was an alcoholic. His brother was an alcoholic. His one of those. These were my two best friends called Three Musketeers. Myself, George, and Joe. My daughter's named after Joe, Johanna. And so, and they're talking about all they're going to do. And, and I, I had never thought I was going to be a preacher. Never. I was going to be a history teacher. And I hear, come out of my mouth, in the middle of the, the, <laughs> the glory cloud. <laughs> I hear, come out of my mouth, I'm going to be a preacher. And I'm so embarrassed. I, where, did, where did that come from? Where? I've never thought about that in my life. And I realized, man, you are such a hypocrite. 
in both fields. And then one night, I was, we got some Acapulco gold. And I was very hallucinating. And in the middle of my hallucination, God messed it up. <laughs> showed up. And I'm in a green room in a rocking chair. Rocking in this rocking chair. And Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and all these cartoon characters are going around me in a circle, clapping their hands and looking at me and kind of giggling. And then all of a sudden it goes from that. I look over this guy. He's got long black hair down to his waist. He's an artist and a friend of mine in high school. And uh, uh, I look at him and he's no longer him. He's now John the Baptist. And I get so freaked out, I try to get out of the car. And the sky is supposed to be black, but it's looking white. And the trees look blue. And, and I'm leaning up against the car, and I can't hardly move. And, and I'm like, oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. And then I saw in this vision, uh, I'm not, I think God's big enough to get into your trip. <laughs> and he's looking at me, and he just looked at me with pity in a way did his head like this. Like, you're so messed up. I still love you. I feel sorry for you. I'm open. It wasn't very long after that that I went to my youth pastor and gave him all my drugs and said, I've got to come back to God. I'm such a hypocrite. It's miserable being a hypocrite. You can't be happy in church or in the world. I was a double hypocrite. The next night, I met with Joe. Joe said, I'm proud of you, Randy. Joe was a Roman Catholic. He wasn't a good one. I wasn't a good Baptist either, you know. And he wasn't a good Roman Catholic. But he said this, Randy, I respect what you have done. I really do. As a matter of fact, I'm going to do what you've done. I want to become a good Catholic. And, but I'm, I'm, I want to wait. I'm only 18 years old. I got some wild oats I want to sow. But when I get old, like 30, <laughs> I'm going to do what you did. I'm going to stop this. I'm going to give my life to God. And I, and I didn't take advantage of that conversation. I, I let it slip through my fingers. And, you know, God was dealing with Joe right then. Three or four days later, on October the 15th, 1970, I'm driving home from college. Joe's next seat to me. Matter of fact, he had asked his sister if she'd switch seats with him and drive home that day. So he's, she's in the back. He's here. And George, my best friend, Joe's my second friend. George is right behind me. But George hated Christians because he had been raised in, a, in an unhealthy expression of Christianity. It really was unhealthy. And George's, I knew the family because George is my cousin. And, uh, and he hates Christians. And he's mad at me for giving the drugs up because I was the only one who had any money to buy them with. And so he, on the way home from college, he says, they called me by my last name in high school, Clark, do you know that if you had a wreck right now, you'd die and go to hell? And Joe, sitting right beside me, said, because one thing people act in private and get with another group, they, they turn. So Joe joined in. Yeah, that's right, Clark. You would. You would. And I said, Joe, I wouldn't. Well, what about you? That's a heavy discussion for 18-year-olds. And we dropped it. 
And in less than five minutes, another, chi- another friend started to pass me, lost control of his car, and hit a little thing on the, one tire on, one tire off. It threw him right into my car, and it knocked me off the road, and I went from here to that post, and it hit a concrete culvert, and the car crumpled. Joe went through the windshield. His neck was instantly broke, and Joe died, and I almost died. And when I, for the next year, I would go home from college and would go to Joe's grave, not talking to the dead, but just therapy, and would cry and say, Joe, I'm so sorry. I didn't tell you the gospel. That night you were open. That night you said you were going to do it when you got older. I didn't seize the opportunity. Joe, I was unfaithful. I didn't share with you. I don't know if you ever really ever heard the gospel. Forgive me. God, forgive me for not sharing with Joe. In that wreck, all the bones in my, most of the bones in my face were fractured. Some were crushed. Three places in my hair was like this, this big, crushed. They almost put a plate in. I'm glad they didn't. It'd be so hard to get through airports today you know but I had paralysis in my digestive system and I had three places in my thoracic vertebrae were uh, 15% um, compressed I had lots of problems jaw was broken going to have to be set now later uh, uh, six years ago I had classic travelers back from uh, from traveling (laughs) I've flown three million miles that time I'd flown two and, uh, and, and they had to do an MRI. And they were looking at the lumbar. My damage was in the thoracic. And the, the guy said, what did you do to your back? And I said, why? He said, every one of your vertebrae has an old fracture in it. I said, oh, when I was 18, I had this car wreck. And I really messed up the thoracic. He said, it must have been a bad wreck because all of your lumbar fractured too. So it was really serious. They thought I could be paralyzed if I didn't, if I moved wrong, because your spine can swell after you've had a major injury like that. So the spe- long story short, the specialists come in. I had three specialists came in to set my jaw. He said, "Put your teeth together. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again." He said, "I don't get it. I've got your X-ray up there. That jaw needs to be set. It's already set." And I didn't get it either because I, I really didn't. I wasn't making connecting dots yet. Then my, uh, I, I hadn't had any, I was being fed through a tube uh, intravenously, not through the stomach, but intravenously, because my digestion, my, my, my intestines, stomach, nothing was working, and for days, and so I'm going to have to be sent to another hospital, big hospital, to see if they can, see if they can get anything to work. But my church prayed for me. Again, it was just a Baptist church. It wasn't like a Pentecostal or charismatic church. It was a Baptist church. And it's not like they had this great thing, faith for healing or not, but the, it was the kids too. And they said, we went in and we, we felt like God said, it's going to be all right. Well, the next day they x-rayed, they, not x-rayed, but they checked me and my digestive system was working. So they pulled the tube out of my nose that was stuck in my stomach and, and pulled tubes. I had tubes where you weren't, you're not supposed to put tubes where I had tubes. But anyway, they were taking <laughs> tubes out of me and they said, we don't know what's, what, what happened because you're not going to have to have the surgery. I began to make a connection. And then I was taking 50 milligram of Demerol every three hours. Demerol is a morphine derivative, and it would put me to sleep. 
And I'd wake up an hour or so later, and then I'd start begging. After about two and a half, I'd start begging for the next shot. Had so many shots, they had to put them in my thighs. My arms were just, you know, every three hours, shots, shots with painkillers. I woke up the next morning and no pain. Now, I hadn't had my head off the pillow for over uh, about 15 days. I couldn't even have a pillow. And they said, if you need to move, punch this. We'll get three nurses in. We'll make sure you don't twist your back because if you do, you can be paralyzed or have Charlie horses the rest of your life. So I wake up, no pain, and I'm thinking, jaw, digestive system, now no pain. And then I heard an impression. It wasn't an audible voice. Impression. I've healed you. Get up and walk. Now, my head's not left to bed in 15 days. I was supposed to be in the hospital 49 to 77 days, what the prognosis was. If you move, you could be paralyzed. But I believed that this was the Lord that said, I've healed you. So I got up in bed, put the bar down, leaned my feet over, jumped up like that, out, grabbed the vent, closed the vent, and walked out into the aisle. The nurses go crazy. You're going to paralyze yourself getting in bed. The doctors are going to, we're going to be in so much trouble. They kept telling, I wouldn't do it. I got my street clothes on. I, you know, I'm, let me out of here. God's healed me. Let me out of here. No, you've got to have a brace and all this stuff. So finally, they sent the head sister, Catholic hospital, sent the head sister in and said, you're going to kill yourself. I mean, I'm kill yourself. You're going to paralyze yourself. You're being a fool. I said, I'm not the fool. She's sister. You believe in Jesus? That's a stupid question. That's sister, but of course she said yes. I said, I do too. And he's healed me. He's not going to let me be paralyzed. He's got a purpose for my life. I got out of the hospital in 20 days. Had to wait five days on that brace. So we braced to come in. And the doctor said, go home and go to bed. No, I'm not going to bed. I'm going to church. You didn't get me out of here. Jesus did. And we scheduled for a revival. The revival opened up a week before. And it broke out. And the biggest pusher in the county after revival broke out, I went to him. He was about to commit suicide. He had 12 tablets of LSD in his pocket. He had it Harley. He'd already ended up in a mental institution from overdoses and stuff. We didn't know, couldn't tell the floor from a door. And now he's just so depressed and discouraged. And he's, he's, he's thrown his life away. His dad's an alcoholic. And in this Jesus movement revival that hit the Midwest in our little Baptist church, we had this little place where everybody drove around, you know, in the cars and they'd come out and wait and put your thing on the window. And... Uh, so Mike said, I ran over to Mike. I said, Mike, I found something better than you've ever had. And he's thinking, what drug is that? And it's what he said, what drug is that? And I said, he's Jesus. <laughs> and God took that, that was all to him. God took that, that's all. And he was miserable. The night when he was going to take his life on a motorcycle with 16 tabs of LSD, and he went instead to church with his girlfriend. And he got gloriously saved, delivered, changed, and happy. Now tonight, we we're going to talk about healing or impartation. I'm not sure which way they want me to go. Either one of those two. But the benefits. Now, today, the crowd that Jesus spoke to, that crowd... All they, had, all they knew was that Jesus had done some healings. And they rejected Jesus. And we blamed them. But today, this is about the size that crowd would have been. It wasn't a big crowd that was made that decision. Choose, 
I'm going to ask you, which one do you want me to release to you? You know why now? You're at such an advantage. You're more culpable, more responsible in your decision. In what way? Those early Jews knew his, some of his teaching, which we have in the scriptures, and they heard about some of his healings, which we do too. But they had no resurrection. They had no ascension. They had no Pentecost. They had no wooing of the Holy Spirit. They had no church of a billion followers of Jesus Christ. But we do, which means we have more light than they did. Why would you choose an, a, a terrorist over a Savior? And the answer, Paul said, is because the God of this world blinds us that we can't hear or understand. So I'm going to pray a prayer and we'll give it a simple invitation. I'm going to ask the ministry team to come forward after the, uh, the prayer and I start the invitation uh, and just stand over here. I want to make a distinction because the, Jesus died not just so we could be forgiven. He died so we could be healed. So if you need to be healed, you can come right up here. The ministry team will pray for your healing. If you need to be filled with the Spirit, they can pray for that. If you just need to talk to somebody, the care, you know, they will pray with you. They will help shoulder your, your burden you're going through. Whatever it is, they're there. But if you're coming to Jesus for the first time or you have been wearing a mask and you know it and God knows it. Nobody else may know it, but you guys know it. And you know you're not really happy wearing that mask and you'd like to have the power to throw it away. <laughs> then you can come forward for that. Or if you have been in a far off country and you, you haven't been to church in months or years, but you came this morning, you've been living in a far off country, he is watching and waiting for you to come home. He loves you so much. He died for you. For all the reasons that I've shared. And we all have different reasons. But what he did for Sue, he can do for you. Don't be like Joe. Don't say, one of these days, when I get older... I'm going to make the right decision. I have faith to believe if somebody's ringing my doorbell. If I go to the door, somebody's coming in. I don't have enough faith to believe that I can go to my door anytime I want, open it, and somebody's coming in. The Bible says we can't come to God except through Jesus, and we can't come to Jesus unless the Spirit's drawing us. How does He draw us? He makes you feel like I'm preaching right to you. He gives you faith to believe that you could be changed, that you could really be changed. I remember praying for Wes and this guy, if I could pray for him, he was backslidden. He said, no. I said, why not? He said, because I believe if you pray for me, I'll be changed. And I don't want to change. That guy had faith. He didn't use it, but God had given him faith. So here's a simple invitation. We're not going to sing five verses of just as I am. And then if you don't come forward, we're going to switch over to softly and tenderly and Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. Oh, we got to... We still got to take up an offering. Okay. Wow. How do we work that out? Um, okay. There's going to be baskets at the back door. And you, if you like, if you, if you want to bless me, and this actually will be blessing me and my family because right now, this is a personal day. This is my wife's day. And she said, this doesn't go to your ministry. This is going to come to you, me, and your children. And we're going to be blessed. And so I just want you to know um, what it's for. 
It's going to be. It's going to allow me to bless my children who lost their dad half of their lives as I tried to follow Jesus and just to honor them and for them to see that people do care about what they price they paid. But that's nothing compared to the price he paid. <laughs> so let's get to, forget that. Let's get back on the main subject. <laughs> Jesus. So here's what we're not... We're not going to sing softly and tenderly, Jesus calling, calling for you and for me. See on the portals, he's waiting, watching, watching for you and for me. Come home. We're not even going to sing that. All I'm going to do is I'm going to count from 10 to 0. And by the time I get to 0, it's over. Invitation's done. So please stand. Ministry team, please come over here. For others that need to come for something other than salvation rededication. But if you're coming to give your life to God, to be forgiven to be rededicated or to, re- to get the power to break, to take the mask off and live holy for, before the Lord, I want you to come to the front. I'm asking you to come to Jesus. I'm not going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes because they led Jesus through the streets of Jerusalem stripped naked for the shame. He endured, despised the shame and endured the cross. If he's knocking, I just want you to come. If you need to leave and go get your children, that's fine. If you don't have any intention of coming, uh, come to Jesus. Come right here. I will pray with you, lead you in a prayer. I want you to pray through. Ten, come to Jesus. Nine, the ministry team will be over here. Anything other than salvation rededication is there. Salvation rededication is here. Come to Jesus. Oh, he loves you. He wants to free you. Fill you. If you need to be filled with the Spirit over there, healing over there, salvation, rededication here. Seven, come to Jesus. Not in your throat, tears in your eyes, anxiety, a little anxiety. That's just that battle going on for your soul. You say, I want to, but my feet feel stuck. Take the first step and the chains will break. Six, come to Jesus. Five, you may be here you know in the Bible they came to Jesus more as family units than they did individuals and you may be here with your boyfriend girlfriend husband wife son daughter uh, somebody your friend and both of you are wanting to come forward and the other I don't know what the other one wants to do so here's what I'm going to ask you to do hold hands to the person you came with just for a few a, a few seconds and you may be thinking I want to do this but I don't I don't know what they want to do and if you really want to come forward this invitation squeeze their hand and, hey, you say, I'll go with you. Squeeze back. Because, really, they do come to Jesus often as households. Five. Thank you, Jesus. Four. Three big lies of the devil. Number one, you're so good you don't need a Savior. You're a good moral man woman living by the Ten Commandments and the Golden Rule. That'll get you in. That's a big lie. Number second lie is the opposite of the first. It's not that you're so good you don't need a Savior. You're so bad you're beyond saving. That's a lie from hell. But the biggest of all is this is not the right time. When's the right time? When he's knocking. He's knocking. This is the time. Three, come to Jesus. Two, Come to Jesus. One. Come to Jesus.